Hi, I'm Kent Garrett. Welcome to another edition of The Last Negroes at Harvard. There were 18 of us in the Harvard College class of 1963. We were born in the 1940s and are now pushing 80. In 1959, we entered Harvard as Negroes, but graduated as Blacks and African Americans. Our guest is Harvard Law Professor Randall Kennedy. He has a new book out titled, Say It Loud on Race, Law, History, and Culture. The book is a collection of essays exploring key social justice issues of our time, from George Floyd to anti-racism to inequality and the Supreme Court. Um, this 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 last book I've done is a little bit different. I've I've never done a book of essays before. Um, I thought about it because I, I like books of essays, but I'd never done one before. And then it seemed that uh, in the you know with the with the COVID curtain down and basically being stuck in my house, it seemed like this it would be a night nice, it'd be a good thing to do a nice project to draw together essays I've written over the past 25 years. I, I, I got together all of these, many of these, I got together these essays. Um, I picked out 25 of the ones that interested me the most. And uh, I redid them. I didn't, none of the things that are published are in their initial state. Um, I, I would, I, I redid them. I would, I would update or uh, sometimes I enlarged them. Uh, there were a couple in which I confessed error and, you know, apologized. Um, there were a few that were not published before. There were a couple in this essay collection that have not been published before and that are now pub- being published for the first time, but many have been published before. Now, there are 29 essays. They are almost all essays about uh, racial matters in some you know, fashion. Uh, they vary a, a lot. So just to give you a sense of the range, uh, there's an essay, for instance, about um, Nat Turner. And, you know, sh- should, should we view Nat Turner as a hero? That, that's one of the essays. There's an essay about Frederick Douglass, everybody's hero. Um, there are essays about... Uh, there are a number of essays about people whom I've known personally. So I clerked for Judge J. Skelly Wright of the United States Court of Appeals of the District of Columbia Circuit. Very interesting judge. He was the, fir- he was the first judge to order the desegregation of a, uh, of a big, you know, of, of a major city in the Deep South. He ordered the desegregation of the schools in uh, New Orleans in uh, 1960. So there's a profile, and I, I worked for him in 1982. Um, there's, a, there's a profile on him. There's a long profile on Justice Marshall. I had the great privilege, one of the great privileges of my life was working for Thurgood Marshall in the 1983-84 Supreme Court term. So there's a long piece about him. Um, an essay that had not been published before and that means an awful lot to me personally was an essay about my colleague Derek Bell. 
Um, Derek Bell was the first black tenured professor at Harvard Law School. He's been a lot in the news lately because Derek Bell is widely viewed as the uh, sort of the, the godfather of critical race theory. Uh, Derek Bell left the law school. He, he, he gave an ultimatum to the law school. He said, listen, uh, by a certain date, you better have uh, appointed a black woman to the uh, to a tenure track position or tenured a black woman and if you don't do that by a certain date i'm gonna leave well the law school did not do that and he left he spent his last i don't know about the last decade of his career at the new york university law school he and i had a very interesting relationship we in certain ways we were personally quite close um but in certain ways we also were quite far apart and we exchanged some very sharp, we had some very sharp public exchanges. And I, I talk about our relationship and his ideas. <clears throat> Give me your impression of the current Supreme Court. Ah, I uh, have very low opinion of uh, our uh, Supreme Court. Um, you know, Frankly, generally speaking, I don't, I don't, I've, I've never had a really high opinion of any of the Supreme Courts, uh, any Supreme Court, to tell you the truth. Um, but I especially have a low opinion of this one. Why? You know, um, the, the people who are on the Supreme Court are, you know, they're generally good lawyers. Um, Nothing more exalted than that. I mean, I must say, I, I love uh, Harvard Law School, but I frankly am very embarrassed by the way in which the law school acts when we are visited by, you know, uh, in any of the justices. It's as if, it's as if, it's as, you know, we, we it's, it's like uh, Hollywood. Um, and, uh, you know, I mean, these, these, these judges, like I said, they're good lawyers. They are not the philosopher kings that one or queens that one might, you know, one might get the impression sometimes reading the law reviews uh, that these are, you know, people, you know, that, that are, you know, uh, are especially learned uh, jurists. Uh, not the case at all. I, I, I think it's just ridiculous. We put this sort of meritocratic spin on the Supreme Court as if these people, you know, know a whole lot. They don't. They're generally good lawyers. They're well connected. They were lucky. They knew people. They knew, you know, they knew people who would, you know, get them uh, nominated and they you know, had records that allowed the a majority of the Senate to vote on, in their behalf. Then, of course, once they become once they become justices, then and only then, then they become they're talked about with a certain reverence. They're talked about with a certain, you know, they 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 they're what they say takes on a certain gravity. I think, for instance, of Justice Anthony Kennedy. Again, I think you know. Good lawyer, good lawyer, but um, the day before Anthony Kennedy was nominated for the Supreme Court, if Anthony Kennedy, you know, if, if he had come up and was the topic of conversation 
amongst uh, the people at Harvard Law School who, for instance, focus on constitutional law, you know, people would, you know, okay, nobody would have said anything, you know, he, he wouldn't have cut much ice at all. Um, or, you know, somebody had said, you know, how about appointing this guy to the faculty? Are you kidding? The people would have said, are you nuts? Absolutely not. Uh, has he written anything that, you know, so would should, you know, suggest that uh, he's, you know, warrants a faculty appointment? Absolutely not. But of course, then he gets appointed. And, uh, you know, when he left the bench, when he left the bench, of course, the Harvard Law Review has a whole, you know, issue. And you have all these people who say wonderful things and blah, blah, blah. So in any event, um, I think these, like I said, why am I so much against them? I'm so much against them, not because of their performance, really, as lawyers. I'm against them because I'm ideologically against them. I'm, you know, their politics are very different than my politics. And um, I basically, you know, how do I judge the Supreme Court of the United States? I judge the Supreme Court of the United States um, like I judge the presidency like I judge the Congress, um, do I think that they are propounding policies that uh, are good public policies that, um, that uh, advance good little d democratic, little r Republican values? Um, if I agree with those things, then, you know, I applaud them. If I don't agree with those things, I don't applaud them. I don't applaud this Supreme Court. It's anti-organized labor. It's totally indifferent to uh, consumers. It is uh, indifferent or hostile towards racial minorities. It is uh, clearly hostile toward uh, uh, certainly the reproductive rights of women. So on ideological grounds, I'm very much against the Supreme Court. If somebody told me that the Supreme Court was going on vacation and that they were not going to deliver any opinions for the next 10 years, I would be happy. How do you feel about expanding the court? You know, I, I have not paid a whole lot of attention to the various sorts of reforms that people are talking about. So you know, expand, you know, court packing. In principle, I'm not against it. So, I mean, I'm not against it in principle. My question would be, well, is it, you know, is it is it plausible that it'll be done? One of the reasons I haven't paid a whole lot of attention, you have to have the political muscle to do it. And the people who are talking about doing it do not have the political muscle to, you know, to see it done. So, you know, they can talk all they want, but I don't, I, it's it's so far from the realm of plausibility. I just haven't invested a whole lot thinking and, you know, reading and studying the matter. What what about the issue of, of term limits? I mean, it would seem to me that if someone is appointed at age, let's say 50, and 30 years later, uh, probably is, re he or she is reflecting the values of 30 years prior, is that what we want on the Supreme Court? So reflect on, if you'd say something about that. You know, again, with the, it, it, um, it seems to me that life tenure is is too much. 
Um, I know, so when I clerked at the Supreme Court in 1983-84, again, I was clerking for a person whom I, you know, deeply revered, Thurgood Marshall. That was an old Supreme Court. And I remember at the time thinking, you know, this, I, I like the idea, I, I think there should be, I like the idea of, you know, an independent judiciary. It's that's that sort of fits in with dispersion of power. I, I like that idea, dispersion of power. Uh, you know, the executive branch over here, legislative branch over here, judicial branch over here. Uh, they're all lawgivers, but I think it's nice you have a you know have a competition, have some sort of division of labor. The idea, though, of justice is being able to be on for life. I mean, you know, it seems to me 15 years gives you, you know, 15 years uh, gives you plenty of time to be distant from, uh, let's say, uh, popular opinion. I, I like the idea of having a branch of the government that is, you know, two steps away, two, three, four, five steps away from the heat of the electorate fine but life tenure and then you know and then when you have life tenure of course you also i mean life you have what we have now which is you know we you know death watches and it's completely you know i mean it's 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 helter skelter um so i think it would be a good thing if there was a you know 15 year you know limit uh, cut out trying to put people on the court relatively young and you know people live longer nowadays so you know this thing where you just put somebody on when they're fairly young and you hope that they'll just stay on stay on stay on I don't like that idea so I'm you know I'm I'm, I'm drawn to the idea of, of 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 a limit 15 years seems that's long enough I presume I presume you're tenured at Harvard and have been teaching there for 35 years yeah Speaking of tenure, how do you feel your presence there has uh, impacted the institution? Well, I, I don't know how my presence has, has affected the institution. I, I'll say this. Um, I have thoroughly enjoyed my time at Harvard Law School. And I mean, I'm person politically. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm on the left. Uh, you know, in the American political scheme of things, I'm pretty far over to the left. Those students, my most left students do not consider me, you know, they, 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 you know, some of them think of me as a conservative. I think that's, you know, completely, you know, I ask them, well, you know, what universe are you living in? But, uh, you know, I mean, you know, frankly, basically I'm a socialist, but in, in any event, I'm a person on the left. Um, I admire Harvard Law School as a place to work. It has been absolutely fabulous. And um, so I've, it, it's, it's certainly given me a lot. I hope that I have uh, contributed to the, you know, many, you know, the many students who've been in front of me in, in, in various classes. I, I, I hope that, you know, I, I hope that I've, enrich their lives in, in, in some way. But, you know, I've, I, I have felt myself to be tremendously blessed 
in being a member of the faculty of, uh, of Harvard Law School. I think people are, you know, sometimes, again, people, especially if my sort of, you know, political valence, I, I think that there's a certain sort of almost embarrassment um, about saying that, uh, what I just said. There's a certain, you know, it's almost, I, I, frankly, I think some people might view it as really sort of unseemly, but I don't. Um, and I, um, I will, I defend the university. Um, you know, we are in perilous times. Uh, I'm not going to defend every darn thing about the university. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm sure that there's, you know, uh, things that are wrong with the university. Yep, I'm sure that's the case. But the university is a place in our society where it's, the, you know, the, the main aspiration is to advance the frontiers of knowledge and to protect uh, the, you know, our intellectual, our scholarly inheritance. That is worth fighting for. And, you know, anybody, frankly, left, right, or center who is who in my view is going to you know in any way threaten that i'm against them and i will fight them i wonder if you found if you've been able to make some uh meaningful alliances with other faculty members that uh where, where you're able to stay uh people that share some of your beliefs and and you're able to affect policy uh in any group sense Yes, I I think so. I think that there, um, I think there. Many, I've I've had, I, I've had, you know, many colleagues who, on the things that matter most, uh, I think you know, sort of share my sensibilities. So, for instance, in the last few years, uh, at various places. There have been episodes of attack on uh, what I would view as, you know, uh, the, the, the intellectual slash scholarly environment. So, for instance, um, I think it's happened about two years ago. And some, sometime in the last two years, there was a there was a the following thing happened at Stanford Law School. A guy at Stanford, professor, conservative professor, his name is McConnell. He used to be a judge on the mm, I forget what circuit, but McConnell, a well known conservative, very he's sort of religion. He's sort of a religion religious freedom guy that's his sort of area he was teaching a course at stanford and it was a course about the founding of the united states mcconnell is a is sort of an is an originalist he's an originalist he's conservative he's talking about the founding of the united states and he's talking about uh that's that's the course the founding of the united states and he's talking about uh racial slavery and the importance of racial slavery in the founding of the United States. And at one point, 
he reads a statement attributed to um oh uh with the uh the, the Virginian founding father whose name is now escaping me but you know Virginian founding father and this whoever it was that he was referring to was said was alleged to have said something like you know watch the federal government because if you don't watch the federal government the federal government will come and take our niggers something like that now he's saying this he's actually he's reading from a document and he says this a student gets upset about this and writes the administration and complains and says you know professor mcconnell ought not to have you know enunciated out loud the n-word and there, this this turns into a real controversy in fact most of the faculty uh join in writing a letter denouncing mcconnell they denounce mcconnell so much so that it comes to my attention i think it comes to my attention because a number of years ago i wrote a book called nigger the strange career of a troublesome word and i talked about you know various controversies surrounding the infamous n-word so somebody writes to me and i mean i didn't even know anything about it they you know somebody come calls me up says hey have you do you know what's going on at stanford blah 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 any event i look into it and i end up i write a letter and in fact, this letter is in this book of essays. I write a letter. I wrote a le I sent it to the entire faculty at Stanford and my own faculty. And I said, listen, you know, as far as I'm concerned, we're all colleagues. I mean, you know, I'm at Harvard, but, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm not a direct colleague, but, you know, we're all in the same business. And I, it seems to me that this is outrageous uh you mean to tell me that a professor it's 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 wrong for a professor to quote something from a historical document this guy wasn't calling anybody this word what do you mean you know he wasn't he wasn't taunting anybody he wasn't threatening anybody he wasn't laughing at anybody he was quoting from a a document to that extent, as far as I'm concerned, he wasn't properly using the word. He was he was quoting the word, but he wasn't using the word in the way in which we, you know, if you in which we think of the word use. Any event, I wrote this. Now, that was a long wind up to saying, see, I don't think that would happen at law, Harvard Law School. Now, maybe I'm wrong. I hope I'm not wrong, but I do not think that an appreciable number of faculty members at Harvard would, you know, denounce somebody under these circumstances. Ah, nothing, I mean, nothing official, but he was, you know, he, he apologized. He said, this would never happen again. Uh, you know, nothing official happened to him, but, uh it's quite it was 
the people, the, 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 the students who chastised him were clearly the winners. And I can't help but think that it, it can't help but have affected the uh, atmosphere out there in a bad way. That is a very big problem. In fact, it's become, it's become part of the sort of the thing to do. It's the thing to do. So if, you know, if somebody, you know, student says, you know, my feelings are hurt, the thing to do is, oh, I apologize. You know, you know, that, that people have said that to me. And I, you know, and I say, well, you know, tell me more. If I have, if, if I have hurt your feelings and uh, you are justified in feeling hurt, I will, you know, I should apologize. I'm not saying that I can't, you know, it's not like I'm always right or I'm above doing, you know, wrong. If, if, you, if, if I've done wrong, explain to me what I've done that's wrong. And if, you know, and, 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 and you know, but don't just tell me my feelings are hurt. I mean, all that tells me is that your feelings are hurt. Maybe your feelings should be hurt. You know, I, I, I think... I think Randall is right, but on the other hand, there, there is this question of what your status is at the time this happens to you. And often, and I've seen this so many times as a complaint officer at, at, at my university, people figure out that the best way to try and tamp, tamp the thing down is just apologize. Because mm -hmm. if you don't, then uh, the business of walking the plank becomes becomes very painful and it becomes extended. Uh, and certainly the example he's giving are for people who are tenured, but it becomes a bigger problem yeah. if the faculty member is not tenured because questions then get raised and you'd be surprised what can happen in a review for promotion, for example, when people bring up stuff like that. Yep. I'm surprised. Uh, it's, it's, I mean, the university, I guess I, I'll just extend it a little bit by saying I, I, I agree very much with everything he said so far. The university is a wonderful place and has a wonderful function in a civilized society and in a democratic society. That does not mean, however, that there isn't a need for things like complaint officers. Mm-hmm. The, 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 the trouble is that even the problem, and in fact, I'd like your comment on that from a, uh, from a legal point of view, part of the problem is that even when you install complaint officers and you say this, there's an appeals process and so on, and people can complain about it, in my experience, it's hard to install a complaint mechanism, which is equally applied throughout the caste ladder within the university, and there is a very serious gas ladder. I'd like your comment on that too. But I have found, I've found at Yale, the gas ladder is very, very powerful. And you can put a complaint system in that applies well to assistant professors, less well to associate professors, and never applied at all, or maybe I shouldn't go that far, applied minimally to full professors. And then, you know, People like deans never get looked at. Hmm. Um, I conducted a complaint hearing once, and uh, 
and, and turned my findings over to a dean. And Randall, I was, I, I was flabbergasted. He was so intent on protecting the full professor, he never even called me in to say, thank you for doing the job, because I spent a lot of time on it mm-hmm. and wrote, wrote my, my report since I'm a forensic guy. I wrote my report very carefully and so on. And he didn't even have the decency to, because he wanted to just hush it up and he did not want to talk about it with me. Yeah. Now, obviously, the climate is very different nowadays, but it, it's, it, it's, it's a hard thing. It's a hard thing to think about where we're going with it. And uh, I'll, I'll stop there. I, I've said a few things that I hope you'll respond to from your, from your angle. Sure. F- frankly, for me, the, th- the thing that uh, is most on my mind is actually not the, the 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 people who are most on my mind are the people who talk in terms of feeling hurt and i'd be very interested uh ezra to get your view on this because i know you know you're you know the the the, the realm of the psychological is your realm now watch yourself. Watch yourself there. Now watch your. Watch. <laughs> when the people talk about, you know, I've, t- you know, they, they, you know, hurt, traumatized. I, I have become. I, I think. I guess I have two. Two views, um, at least. One is, I think that that language. Uh, I. I. I'm I'm skeptical when I hear it because if you're in university life now you know that there's a real benefit in using that language that's a language that you know will get you traction you know I've been hurt I've been traumatized that immediately gets you traction and if it gets you traction and people you know these students are not dumb you know they see that it gets you traction well heck if if i can put somebody on defensive by using that language i'm going to use that language so i've seen it weaponized i've seen it you know it's 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 the language to use not only by the way not only in the you know university setting it's of course it's gone outside the university setting the New York Times a couple of summers ago, when um, there were staffers at the New York Times who said that they felt unsafe because the um, uh, editorial director of the New York Times had published that article by Senator Cotton. Now I don't like no I don't like Senator Cotton. I think Senator Cotton's a reactionary. I'm an ideological adversary of Senator Cotton's, okay? But the idea that you, what you're at the New York Times and you're saying that you feel under threat, you feel unsafe because this thing was published? Oh please. I'm not going to, you know, seriously. I'm you know, no. No. I don't believe you. I do not believe you. That's number one. Number two, for students who actually say that they feel hurt, that they feel traumatized, I say to them, you know, 
you you tell me that you want to move the country in a better direction. You tell me that you want to come to some fan, you know, one of these fancy schools so that you can be, you know, learn stuff and be put in places of authority so that you can fight the good fight. And yet you're telling me that you also are feeling so hurt. I'm going to tell you straight. I tell the students, I say, where would we be if John Lewis had acted like you're acting? I mean, wh where would we be? I mean, what? In, in 1960, 61, 62, 63, 64, 65, these students, what? Are you kidding? The stuff y'all are talking about is the least, was the least, that, that wouldn't have not even figured as a problem for them. They, you know, these were, these were people who were really doing wonderful things. And what part of what enabled them to do wonderful things is they were tough. They were tough and they were, you know, they were not, they weren't, uh, you know, sort of falling down and, you know, sort of, we can't function because somebody called us such and such. Are you, these people were facing, you know, people who had guns on them for God's sakes. What's, you know, st stop this. So frankly, what's got, what, what strikes me is the infantilization of the students and, and 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 it goes further i mean you all you all are you know a, 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 to, are, are a bit senior to me you all fought for um you know you all fought against parietals the students now they want parietal they you know they're sort of they go to the dean they want big you know big you know big mama and big daddy to take care of them i'm i'm saying what's wrong with you all but that's what's happened that's what's happened randall i i cannot remember as the law school professors were ripping me a new one that they were concerned about my feelings <laughs> so well by the way that doesn't uh, now you'd be interested there has been now again i don't want to say that every, the law school environment's a very different environment than when you were there um there are hardly there are a couple of people who are known to be sort of toughies in class but very few very few in fact the, the ones who are a little bit tough in class are really outliers most people and if, not 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 anything like 30 years ago the pro the problem though in in the broader society i think is where to stop the you know where to stop the the, the bell in the middle so so that this the stuff becomes a little bit more stabilized or a little more even handed mm -hmm. when i talk when i talk to the young people they mean they they tell me look uh it, it, you know, it's been it's it's been a long time that a woman has not been able to be heard. Um, so even if even if we 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 meaning the the the, the young women, even if we 
um, misaccuse or uh, I don't know, falsely accuse somebody, although they don't claim they do it intentionally. Yeah. Right. They 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 think it it's um, they think it's sort of you know I guess historically justified. Yeah, I've heard that. And and um, I mean part of my part of my problem is is how to how to get it this this thing even handed so that so that people can argue reasonably. Uh, for example, I'm wor working cur currently on something. You know, it's hard to get. It's hard to get a Sakai. It's only recently now it's starting to come up with this change across the country, that a psychiatrist can walk into court as an expert witness and argue that um, a black person has undergone discrimination, for example, and the discrimination actually has an effect on one's uh, psyche and one's functioning. Mm -hmm. So this has given license, and 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 I and I and I and I pause to tease you because the, the problem is complicated. It's not just the complainants, but um, you know your profession guys are enjoying doing this stuff and, and aiding, aiding. And I use the word plaintiff in in a, in a you know a sort of a general category at all levels. Uh, they are encouraging people to make the complaint. Let's see how much we can get to stick. So, so, so they adopt the notion of, uh, you know, you've been hurt, you've been hurt by, and I, I believe me, I've heard all these complaints. Uh, this student come and making a complaint about a professor. Well, she walked into the class, and and I knew she was, I she cut her eye at me, <laughs> and and, and you, I, I know you're all probably laughing or thinking it was funny, and I'm trying to, I'm I'm trying to be supportive and to get this plaintiff to. To at least concretize it. Well, how did you know she was cutting her eye at you? And what's a cut eye anyway? <laughs> no, no, you all may think this is a kind of, some kind of a joke, but this is a, this is serious business. Yeah. And 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 when I asked the question, can you explain it? There are other females in the group, you know, who said, "No, uh, 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 watch it now, watch it, because your questioning means you don't believe her." Yeah, and and so you're prejudging the case and, and all that sort of stuff. I mean, this this is a this is this is a serious kind of business and a fallout from the unevenness now in in the way this the pendulum has swung back. Yeah, uh, and I I just wonder I just wonder how you think about that. So you with a, you with status and standing can say, well, you know, what do what do you mean by that? That you're hurt. I am not even allowed to say something like that because yeah. now you see I'm a psychiatrist who apparently doesn't even understand what trauma means. And there's a, there's a massive literature on trauma now. And it's not just written by psychiatrists. Lawyers are into the business. Diplomats are into the business. Everybody is into the business of not being able to re-traumatize. Uh, and why this is function well? Because we never... We never acknowledge the potential for trauma in the situations for the groups on the bottom of the of of the of the pole. And that, Brandon, you've got to come to terms with that. They're saying it's my turn now. Yeah, look yeah. up the pole, and anybody I see who is above me on the pole, I'm going to accuse of X and Y and Z. <laughs> uh, there's nothing more to there's. I mean, yes. You've described it. You've described our circumstance, I think, you know, very ably. And yeah, that is exactly 
where we are. And I don't, you know, and, and probably it's going to be that way for a good long time. And, uh, you know, what, what can one say? Uh, it's probably going to be that way. I do think that, you know, we do have to be very careful. Uh, there are people that are in the middle of these things. And, uh, you know, I, I, it, it, it doesn't sit well with me just to sort of say, well, collateral damage, that's just the way the cookie crumbles. Um, but, you know, I don't, I don't disagree with anything you've said. I think that that's, yeah, what, what you've said is exactly what I'm seeing. Well, Randall, when you put on your sort of philosophical hat, I mean, where, where are we at as a society in terms of race and that? What, what's oh, that? my God. What Weaves telling me? <laughs> <laughs> I'm in a um I think that we're in a very perilous moment. In fact, the first essay in my book is called is, a, is an essay about optimism and pessimism in racial thought in America. And basically what it says is you know, there's, you know, racial thought and people thought, of, you know, a lot of different things in terms of race in America. But one way to try to make sense of thinking about race in America is to put people in terms of an optimistic camp versus a pessimistic camp. And so I talk about, I say, you know, when I say optimistic, what am I talking about? I'm saying the the optimists are the people who um, say that we shall overcome. We shall overcome. That, yeah, there's been uh, much racial oppression, much, much racial uh, enmity, much racial cruelty in America, but that despite all of that, um, it's it, we 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 will reach a a point at which there's a multiracial democracy in America in which people view one of one another as neighbors and there there will not be you know racial hierarchy in America there's 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 that view and among the optimists, the great 19th century optimists would be the great Frederick Douglass. The great 20th century optimists would be the great Martin Luther King Jr. In the 21st century, the most consequential of the optimists would be Barack Obama. Um, and, you know, and, and, and for most of my life, I would say I've been, you know, in the, in the optimistic camp. The pessimistic camp is actually more interesting uh, intellectually, I think. In the pessimistic camp, among white thinkers, you would have Alexis de Tocqueville. De Tocqueville was thoroughly pessimistic. He has a chapter in uh, Democracy in America called The Three Races of America. And he thought that there would never be racial equality in America. He thought that Native Americans would be exterminated. He thought that there would be racial warfare forever between uh, blacks and uh, between blacks and whites. Um, 
Other pessimists would be uh, uh, Thomas Jefferson, uh, notes on the state of Virginia, thoroughly pessimistic. Uh, Abraham Lincoln, that Lincoln was Lincoln was always interested, for instance, in colonization. Why? Because he, he, his view was, you know, you're, he, even after the abolition of slavery, we're not going to the uh, blacks and whites are not going to be able to share the country uh, on a neighborly equal basis. Uh, among black pessimists, you have the black nationalist tradition. Uh, you have, you know, Elijah Muhammad, Malcolm X, Marcus Garvey, um, my colleague, Derek Bell, Derek Bell, and that would be a very important voice in the pessimistic tradition. He, you know, he believed in what he called, you know, the permanence, the permanence of racism in America. One other person who's been very important to me uh, as a pessimist was my father, whom I revere. My father was a thoroughgoing pessimist. My father was an anti-patriot, an anti-patriot. He never forgave the United States of America for what he viewed as its betrayal of black Americans. I talked about this with him a good bit, and there were certain things that were very much in his mind. One of the things, for instance, that was in his mind was uh, that he could never forgive the United States for the treatment of um, the treatment of black people in uniform. You know, he 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 was he was a he was in the army during World War Two. And he said, well, you know, that's in fact, that's how my parents met outside at Fort Jackson, outside of Fort Jackson in, in Columbia, South Carolina. My father said, you know, check this out. So here you have a situation where you have black Americans wearing the uniform of the United States. Some of them, you know, facing bullets abroad. They come back to the United States and black Americans in uniform cannot go places where German and Italian prisoners of war can go. What? what uh-uh. No. And it, he that that he and he said he, he never got over that. So and that's how I grew up. I mean, I grew up. Uh, my father was a very very intelligent man. You know, big reader. Um, again, I have been an optimist. I will say this to get to your question. I want to filibuster. I have been a very confident optimist throughout much of my life. In the last few years, however, mainly because of the rise of Donald Trump, my confidence has been shaken and I feel somewhat chastened. So for instance, in my interactions with Derek Bell, I used to really, I used to sort of almost I almost used to sneer almost at Derek Bell and say, you know, come on, knock it off. This is ridiculous. What are you talking about? Um, I don't, I, I don't do that. I don't do that anymore. I, I, I disagree. I, you know, has there been change? Yeah, there's been change. 
I mean, as as we are gathered right today, right today, you know, the vice president of the United States is, you know, refers to herself as a black American. The head of the Department of Defense is black American. And one can sort of, you know, you can, you know, you can go all over America at various places. The commandant of West Point is a black American. And one could go on. So, you know, has there been change? Yes, there has been change. I'm thankful for that. But it's also the case that a politician who obviously, I'm not saying he wasn't like, he wasn't hiding. He wasn't being subtle. A politician who obviously trafficked in racial resentment and racial animus got to the White House. In the last election, 70 million Americans voted for Donald Trump, despite the fact that he, you know, obviously engaged in race baiting. Again, not, 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 we're not talking about subtle, obvious. That, you know, um, that has chastened me and I'm not, I'm, I'm, and then, you know, I mean, you know, take a look at what's going on with respect to voting. Take a look at what's going on with respect to, you know, uh, the events of, you know, January 6th. I'm, I'm very worried. And the race issue is part of that worry. While race is a very important, very important and independent force in American life, I think it's very important for people to know, you know, it, it's, it's, it's one of, it's only one thing. And interestingly enough, again, even though I focus a lot on race, I find myself, especially, you know, recently saying to folks, let's not overdo the importance of race. And in fact, sometimes I think that the racial aspect of things is overemphasized so that we think of things only in a racial frame. And by thinking about certain things only in a racial frame, I think we actually minimize the problem and also um, cut ourselves off from resources to deal with the problem. Let me give you an example. Um, policing. Now, is there racist policing? Yes, it's a scandal, absolute scandal. Black people disproportionately on the, you know, get, get, the, get the short end of the stick. No question about it. No question about that. So I don't, you know, it's, it seems to me, though, I, t I say to, you know, my activist students, I say, that's true. Black people disproportionately affected, you know, police shootings, police beatings, police stops, all of that. All that's true. But don't forget that, you know, there are, there, there are white people who are shot by the cops, too. Half of the people that are in prison are white. 
don't forget the white folks. And the reason why I think that's important to say is, you know, if if you just if you if if you get it in people's minds that the only people being affected by uh, ignorant, brutal, you know, stupid police are black people. Well, hell, there's going to be a whole lot of people who are going to say, oh, really? And they're going to turn off the television set and go on about their business and say, well, you know, damn, I, I needn't be bothered about that. No, I think, in fact, in fact, what you should say, hey, listen, white people, these police, it's true that black people are disproportionately affected by them, but there are a whole lot of white people who are being roughed up and shot up by the police too. So you have something in this game. So I think that the class aspect of things sort of let, you know, let's make it clear that it's not just black poverty. When you say poverty, people think black. They, they forget all about white folks. I said, no, 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 no. White poor people, come on over here. One last thing, and then I'll, I'll be quiet. Um, Ezra said something that really hit home to me, and it's really true. So, for instance, and I say this in my book, and it makes me quite sad. And it makes me sad because I've got three children, black children who are in their 20s. And the fact that I'm in, I'm 67 this year. I have lowered my expectations with respect to race in America. So, for instance, in my book, I talk about uh, my standard is an effort to reach racial decency. I did not say racial equality. I used to talk, you know, racial equality, racial equality, racial equality. My standard has been lowered. My ambitions, unfortunately, you know, have, have been lowered. Now I'm talking about racial decency. That is one of the things that, you know, that's, that's, that's sort of an offshoot of, like I say, the last few years. And, you know, it's part of an offshoot of my sense, Ezra, that what you say is you know, right, that, you know, even even when you change the cast of characters of, you know, who's up top, who's the boss, you still have this situation that we have in all too many places in America. So, I don't know, that's, that's sort of, you know, I'm, 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 I'm wrestling with that. Perhaps Randall Kennedy is right. All we can expect now is racial decency. But I think there is still time to bend that arc of history back towards justice and equality. 
That's it for this episode of The Last Negroes at Harvard. I'm Kent Garrett. You can hear more episodes on our podcast, and you can read all about us in the book, The Last Negroes at Harvard. Mm-hmm.